and welcome to the sixth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. It's December, which means it's time for the annual season finale live show. The date is set for Sunday, December 17th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. As usual, we'll have an assortment of guests from the season to chat about musical theater and this season's episodes. The video will live stream directly to Scene to Song's Facebook page, and you don't need a Facebook account to watch it. Just go to facebook.com slash scene to song and you'll find it. If you have a question or comment, we'll respond to it during the show. You can email scene to song at gmail.com. You can use one of the Scene to Song social media platforms. You can watch the show live on the Facebook page on December 17th and comment on the video. And the most fun way to participate, you can call in directly during the show and comment or ask your question on the air. The guests and I can't wait to discuss musical theater with you. My guest today is Victoria Myers. Victoria is a writer currently focused on film and television projects. She recently wrote, directed, and starred in her first short film, A Legend is Hatched, based on a character created for her comedic newsletter. Additionally, she occasionally writes about pop culture. For five years, she was the founder and editor-in-chief of the game-changing theater publication, The Interval. Two of her favorite pieces for The Interval are her profile of Bernadette Peters and her profile of Lear de Bessonet. We're going to talk today about the Mary Rogers, Marshall Bearer, Jay Thompson, and Dean Fuller musical, Once Upon a Mattress, based on the fairy tale, The Princess and the Pea. Hey, Victoria. I'm so glad that you are back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, we will jump right in with our get to know our guest questions. Who is your favorite musical theater writer and why? I find for theater in general and musicals and like specifically um, that I'm very production oriented. And I think that's sort of like part of, I guess, like the point of it being theater and the point of it being collaborative is that things work depending on the specific people involved in any one production. Um, and they don't necessarily work across the board, um, which I think is probably why I don't necessarily have a favorite musical theater writer. Um, although I will say, and this is cheating a little bit, um, but just because I've been working on the short film and my friend Jen, I should say Jennifer Lucy Cook is a composer um, and she did the score to my film and she also um writes for musical theater and uh she did a really amazing job with the score and I'm excited for people to hear it and for people to hear her other work um so certainly at the moment uh she is my favorite composer what musical has made you laugh the hardest and which musical has made you cry the most I will say (laughs) to again like not answer the question but to sort of editorialize about the question I feel like in general crying as sort of a litmus test to emotion I don't think is always very accurate because I think there are lots of things that you cry at and it's not necessarily like it doesn't mean that they're good (laughs) or moving or they necessarily work like there are things that are just like emotionally manipulative 
that you start crying at or you're crying because of reasons that are not necessarily really to do with the quality of work. Um, Because I find actually, and again, like I'm really not a crier in that way, (laughs) that the few times when I have cried at like movies or like, you know, um, shows, it's usually not things that are good. Like, it just sort of triggers something that has nothing to do with what is, like, happening on the stage and has everything to do with me uh, and just whatever's going on at that moment um, and probably not about the quality of work. Uh, in terms of um, musicals that have made me laugh, I feel like it's probably cheating to, like, say the producers. Because <laughs> um, that, uh, that, but uh, <laughs> that seems like such an obvious choice. Um but, but sometimes, also, that is, sometimes that yeah, is sometimes that is yeah like and it's funny because in terms of what we're going to talk about because uh, I feel like this will come up again is I feel like in the last bit uh comedy on stage and in musicals like it hasn't been going super well I would say uh just in terms of things that are really funny in sort of a sustained way and then know how to sort of make laughs work for an entire two two and a half hours um you know, I think there's some, like, um, Kristen Chenoweth in anything will make me laugh a lot. Um, you know, I thought she was hilarious and, uh, sorry, I can never remember if the musical version is on the 20th century or 20th century, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, On the 20th century. Yeah. On the 20th century. Um, I always get confused with the titles because the movie is the 20th century. Um, the movie also being very, very good. Um, but I thought she was fantastic in that and just giving a very good comedic performance. Is there a classic show you saw recently for the first time? And what was your experience with it? Um, yes. So again, to sort of connect, because we're going to be talking about the uh, upcoming Encore's production of Once Upon a Mattress as part of our Once Upon a Mattress discussion, is that I did see the production of Oliver that they did, which I had never seen before. Um, and because I don't like things with children, I had never seen the movie or anything. Um, but I thought what was sort of interesting about that production, and again, having no real prior, like I knew a couple of the songs and having no real prior knowledge of it, um, is like I know everybody makes a very big deal out of the um, Nancy song, As Long As He Needs Me, because of the abuse elements of it. But I thought sort of in terms of like problematic elements of that show that don't get enough attention is that I feel like a way that it's very has like a lot of contrast with something like Annie is that in Oliver, it's like the one kid is okay, but then there's this question of like, but what about all the other kids? And there's sort of no accounting for the fact that like they don't get any sort of happy ending or resolution or anything, where at least in Annie, they sort of do have like the thing at the end of like, oh, but like all the kids get to come to the party and all the kids right. get to be adopted. Um, and I thought what I thought was interesting about the encore staging, um, because it was directed by Lear de Bessonet, who will also come up later in our conversation, is that she used the kids as a way to sort of bring in the community chorus, which is, of course, a big part of her work is all the community-based stuff. And I thought that actually that decision to sort of bring in the community stuff there highlighted the fact that you have this outstanding question with this musical of like, well, what about all these other children? Yeah, I think uh, with Oliver, like it definitely adds to just like the 
bleakness of that show that there are just like all these children who just like get lost <laughs> in the the ending and it's like you think about the darkness is like with Nancy but like yeah there's darkness everywhere what is the most interesting thing you've learned from a musical so recently because as I mentioned before I've been working on this short film um or I guess I should say short film isn't quite the right term for it because it's a cross between a short film and like a pilot basically um and it's a comedy it's sort of a very absurdist comedy it was something that sort of in determining the rules of this world, something that I found myself talking about a lot um, was using this idea of like, it was like, well, think of like musicals where it's like, you'll have some musicals, mostly the more contemporary ones where there's sort of a convention around why people sing. Like we sing because we're in the Kit Kat club or, you know, like there's something built around it that's sort of like, this is why these people are singing. Um, but then in a lot of the older musicals, there's absolutely no convention around it. Um, and it is just sort of like, well, people are singing because it's a musical. Mm-hmm. And you're not constantly having to justify sort of like why people are singing or why there's dancing. Like it's just the world um, and sort of making that a cohesive hermetic world where that happens is actually something that was really helpful to think about um, in terms of making a film where the comedy is sort of over the top and where you don't necessarily want people who keep like um, popping the balloon, I guess, or coming in and sort of um, opening it up to too many questions of sort of the logic of the world or trying to build too much scaffolding of, well, this is why this happens and this is when this happens and this is when this happens. Um, because that isn't necessarily always helpful to have that. If anything, it can actually, I think, work against you. Um, so actually, in sort of putting that together, um, there was a lot of talking about musicals. Yeah, mus- I mean, I think musicals are so good in that way because, like, yeah, they have these weird rules and conventions and it, like, gets you to ask questions and, like, why, yeah, like, why is this happening? Like, in 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 ways that, like, other uh forms of uh storytelling don't per se because like there's like just you're you're just like oh because this is supposed to just be real yeah i mean it's and i think the thing is is when you're doing something that is not realism that sometimes mm-hmm. the trick is also like how do you get people to not ask a question because mm-hmm. there is a, something that right. i think happens in comedy and i think it can be true in musicals too that as soon as people start like questioning the logic of the world too much that it becomes a little bit like a house of cards. You remove one and then all of a sudden like the entire thing falls over. Um, And I think that's very true in comedy that like, if you're like, well, wait a second, why, like, why is this happening? Then you also start being like, but also why is that happening? That can put you in a real danger zone. Well, let's move on to our topic, which we've already alluded to a couple times, which is the show Once Upon a Mattress from 1959, composed by Mary Rogers, lyrics by Marshall Bear, and uh, written with Jay Thompson and Dean Fuller which you don't hear as much about. (laughs) But yes. So yeah, and I'm really excited to talk about this. I usually start these conversations with just like our experience with the show. And I guess I saw a production of this 
when I was young at like a, a summer community program that was doing it. And, uh, but I didn't really remember it at all. I just knew I had seen it. Um, so it was like really good to revisit it and, uh, I guess really encounter it again for the first time because I didn't, I, I knew of some songs from it, of course, like shy and, and all that, but, um, and so a lot of the songs sounded familiar, but I, yeah, I didn't know the show really. Um, so yeah. What has your, been your experience with it? So I um, definitely did not see the 1959 production. <laughs> um, and so I became aware of it. Well, there's sort of two answers to this. I, I would say I became mostly aware of it actually because um, uh, because of Sarah Jessica Parker, to be completely honest, um, which is... Uh, when Sex and the City debuted, I had started watching it despite the fact that, like, being sort of too young for it, um, right from the first season when it originally aired, um, despite being, like, I don't know, 12 at the time. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, having uh, unlimited access to television um, and because I had seen her uh you know in hocus pocus first wives club la story and all that i was like oh it's this um and i think also because during that time um and we'll probably come back to this later um but i think what people forget is the new york based talk shows um you know it's like the rosie o'donnell show was on every day after school um and she was on that and she you know she sort of was like a personality in a way that I think doesn't exist so much anymore because of like people being so guarded with like publicists and all that. Um so you would just sort of like know her sort of being like oh Sarah Jessica Parker New York personality and actress. Um and so then watching Sex and the City and then I it also I think actually no I did not see her in How to Succeed. Um I did see that but not with her in it. Um I then was like, oh, she 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 does musicals. Um, so I had her recording of Once Upon a Mattress. Um, and I used to use Shy as my, or not Shy, sorry, um, Happily Ever After as my audition song. Um, so I that was the recording that I knew. And the other thing, and this is sort of something I've been thinking about lately. And once I knew we were going to be talking about this, is I remember as a kid so the production she was in was uh the 96 97 season and i sort of remember being like just like very very aware of those posters like i could have told you what those show posters looked like despite the fact that i didn't see the production um and i was trying to figure out like why i was so aware about it or also sort of like a retroactive thing of thinking i was more aware of it than i had been um, just because then a couple of years later, she became so famous. Right. Um, that you sometimes misremember. But I actually don't think that was entirely it. I mean, I do think there were, like, a lot of posters, and I certainly saw them when I was in the city. Um, and somebody must have seen the show. I guess it was my grandparents, because I remember in their apartment, like, there was a playbill sitting around for it for, like, ever. Um, which I actually think I might still have, because <laughs> then I took it. Um, and... But the thing that was 
I was thinking about lately it was why it might have made an impression is because at that point, 96, 97, you know, all the musicals that I had seen were um, like the female lead was basically the um, person who had the most lines. It wasn't a female protagonist. And I sort of wonder if that's part of the reason why the posters and stuff stuck out to me because even though there was a drawing like it wasn't her it was still like you know a woman on the poster and only one name above the title um and most of the stuff I had seen at that or all the stuff I had seen at that point you know again there's certainly women with good parts um but they were not the protagonist um so that's something that I've been thinking a lot about is sort of that um, and I even looked some to sort of see like, well, what else had been sort of playing around those years? And were there also like other shows that had, you know, a true female protagonist in them? And like, there were a couple or other musicals, I should say, and there were a couple. Um, so it may be something that feels more true than is actually true. But a lot of the shows that I think of as sort of being the ones where there started to be, like, true female protagonists, like, they came a little later. Yeah, it is. I'm, like, trying to think of ones around that, shows around that time in 1959 that, um, I, I mean, we're talking about the 90s rep- revival, yeah. but, like, even in, like, 1959, like, there... Yeah, I mean, I like, do think there were some, because, like, obviously Gypsy. Right, Gypsy, yeah. Um, or even, and this came into my mind because it, for me, was such, again, like, the revival was such a big deal for me. Like, Annie, get your gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I feel, out of musicals that I saw growing up, Annie, get your gun was the first one that had a female protagonist. Mm-hmm. And that was the Burna Peters production. Um, right. We, who we've obviously discussed. Right. And that was um, 1999. Yeah, and I guess Gypsy was the same year was that the same year as Bones Upon a Mattress yeah it is yeah 1959 yeah so yes so there's yeah that's true there's so there's two in that season that had the female protagonist but this one is I just find this this protagonist like so interesting because it's like it's like someone who's you know trying to get married (laughs) but like it's just like kind of turns that idea on its head and it's like this is like like this is like a big personality who is as big a personality as Mama Rose but who is going to be like the one everybody loves. Well, I mean it's a comedy and I think that's sort of the thing. Is it also it's a comedy right. um and supposed to be sort of a broad comedy because of, you know, where it was developed, right, how it right. was developed. Her big qualities are celebrated basically whereas in like other shows they're like uh you know these types of characters you know are are difficult or are hard to take or you know something like that but um but yeah i mean it's i think it is interesting to talk about how the show kind of formed um since that's like it's so much of like why it is what it is so a lot of my knowledge of the development is from the Mary Rogers, Jesse Green book, uh, which I think at this point is right. true of like, a lot of people knowing it. For people who don't know, it was developed um, at sort of one of these summer resorts 
um, in the Poconos as sort of part of, um, I don't think the Poconos is technically the Borscht Belt, but it, like essentially where they were is like the Borscht Belt. Um, it's the it's the Philly Borscht Belt, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> where they would have a lot of entertainers come to be the entertainment and they would write uh, basically variety shows. A lot of it um, was a lot of the entertainment that they would do as a form of um, summer stock. And it's just like a ton um, of entertainers came out of these places, especially Jewish entertainers. Um, and that's where the show was developed. And it was very much developed also in like the confines of um, what you read in the book. Um, the confines of one of these summer resorts were like not only do you have to do things quickly, but also in this case, part of it was like they wanted roles for like these eight people who they had um, – as part of their like right. rep company. Um, so because of, and like that dictated a lot of the creative decisions, the sort of like how the queen was written, how the king was written, how the prince was written, because they were writing for like very specific people who had very specific limitations more than anything else. But what I found in sort of like reading the book, and I found this across the board and reading the book, not just sort of, um, you know, the chapter two on Once Upon a Mattress is like, it definitely, to me, and admittedly, like, I don't know that much about developing musicals, but, like, there was this thing of, like, oh, that actually seems like a, like, both a fun way to develop a musical and also a way that actually, like, it's so different than it seems like how things are developed today. To me, in certain ways, what it ended up reminding me more of is almost like they were writing for, like, TV or for, like, sitcoms or something in certain ways. Yeah. Um, but, uh, as somebody who's, like, watched a lot of sitcoms, like, that's sort of where the best joke telling is, um, and the best structure around joke telling. But, yeah, I think, like, the development, because I think, you know, it's interesting when you have limitations as a form of development, Mm -hmm. and you just have to work with them. (laughs) It seemed like they, they, they were just writing it for this, like, they didn't really think beyond this summer um when they were writing it whereas like you know when you're developing a musical you know maybe you're writing a first draft but it's like you know and then we'll we'll do this with it and then we'll do this you know it seemed like they were just you know given those confines just like writing it for this and then these producers you know these people came and wanted to use it and it kind of went from there, but like, but yeah, they didn't, I, it didn't seem like from the book anyway, my impression was it didn't seem like they were thinking of it as like something that was going to be developed and for Broadway, expanded yeah. And, and yeah, and go through all that process. Well, and this is sort of related to that because I felt like this wasn't something that was ever really addressed um, in the book, um, but something that I sort of uh, wonder about that I think relates to what you were just saying is that also, I wonder, because they weren't necessarily thinking about it as like, we're going to do this show and it's going to go to Broadway, that they were sort of just writing for the audience that was there, which meant that they were writing Uh for a very specific audience and not trying to write for a general audience and write for, like, everyone and make it a hit. Um, Uh And how that affects the writing process, too, when you think about audience in a way that is very different than I think a lot of what now and sort of the developmental process for Broadway, which is just trying to make things as like general across the board appealing as you can. 
where it's like mm-hmm. they were just making stuff for a bunch of like Jews who were looking to get married. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like right. They're just, but you know, yeah. it was like that- a very specific thing, and also the fact that what you can do in terms of like uh, jokes, um. And not that I think, in my impression of, like, Once Upon a Mattress, is certainly that anything is particularly, um, you know, I don't think there's anything that's, like, super Jewy in there. But in right. another way, like, it kind of is super Jewy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, maybe in a more, like, I don't even think necessarily in a coded way, but I just wonder if that's, like, sort of where the specificity of the audience that it was originally written for comes in that when you're just sort of like right. not thinking about it and just doing it for the people who you're first off around all day and mm-hmm. also who you know are going to be coming to the show so that's a question that I have which I, it's not in any way really addressed in the book um but maybe it's a question for Jesse Green <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. he knows yeah and then and then it was like they they then like expanded it for Broadway and like two months or something yeah really quick really fast also think sometimes can be beneficial because when you just have to like do it um and not yeah yeah yeah. um yeah and also like the fact that I think uh I wonder or I would imagine that like a number of people assume that was written for Carol Burnett which it was not yeah that was interesting in the book too that it was written specifically with somebody else in mind that didn't end up doing the show and uh then they found carol burnett yeah it's just like well like that whole thing too that they didn't go with the woman who was written for which um i want to say was nancy walker because at the time like that they thought she was too big of a name and uh that uh, georgia abbott the director wanted to like discover someone and make a star but yeah not written for carol burnett and carol burnett not a jew right Although I feel like for not a Jew, definitely, you know, uh, close to a Jew in certain ways, um, which I just mean because right. she's funny. Well, she gets that she gets that t- style. Of humor. Yeah, she got the style of humor. I also was found it interesting. I mean, I'm sure this was known before, but that the like the uh, the Princess Winifred, the coward brunette role has like kind of three big songs or so throughout the show the first one is shy which is like you know her big the big famous song but that wasn't even written for the show it was like a song that they had written previously and as just like a one-off song and then they were like oh this works for this (laughs) this show and so they put it in it's like her big character song which i thought was interesting because were they writing the character that way or were they like, oh, this this could be her character <laughs> kind of thing? Yeah. Another question for Jesse. Um, right. <laughs> I've always been shy. I confess that I'm shy. Can't you guess that this confident air is a mask that I wear cause I'm shy. And you may be sure think sort of with the character with the songs because the other thing about the development and they don't get into this in the book either but you know in the late 1950s because of course like the thing that you're 
coming off of in terms of comedy and especially women in comedy is I Love Lucy, which of course had like, you know, a huge, humongous impact on, you know, comedy as a whole and certainly women in comedy. Um, But also, you know, it does sort of fall into that Lucille Ball style of comedy, which is very broad. Um, But I think like the other thing with the Lucille Ball style of comedy with I Love Lucy is that so much of um, the Lucy Ricardo character, um, you know, it's very ambitious. And it's uh-huh. a very big character and very ambitious character and a character who's very much like, oh, whatever that thing is, I can do it. Like, I'm going to write a novel. Or like, oh, you're doing an opera? Okay, I'll write it and I'll direct it and I'll star in it. Um, and it's an ambition that's also, like, I don't think um, – I personally would say, you know, it was more so than we see with women on TV today or in most sort of roles mm-hmm. that there is just sort of, you know, a huge amount of uh, confidence in herself. But then so much of the structure and like because of the time period is, you know, she's always foiled at the end. Mm-hmm. So it's like they right. get away with a lot. They get all away with a lot. And like they really, really do. Um and then, you know, the last 30 seconds, she has to go back to being a housewife until next week when she like tries again. And I think, like, that's also sort of interesting to think of coming off of that into Once Upon a Mattress because, yes, the plot has to do with marriage. But, you know, again, you have a character who's, like, very big and also sort of, like, very confident and just, you know, has, like, a big physicality in the way that I think that, uh, you know, the associations with that character also very much has to do with, like, the physicality of it. Um, mm-hmm. which going to the Sarah Jessica Parker production, because I did go and like read a couple of the reviews um, and we can talk about that production more. Um, you know, there was a huge focus on her physicality in a way that uh, should come as no surprise. It's kind of sexist. But I do think, again, it's sort of interesting of like at the time period of like sort of how far people push things and then sort of when they had to like ricochet back a little bit. Or, like, still leave it, you know, a little bit in the confines of the time period. Um, And also the slight change between, you know, the early 1950s when I Love Lucy started and then, you know, the end of the 50s going into the 60s. Because I remember, I think it was actually Meryl Streep who said this, um, talking about a lot of the old comedies and, like, Carol Lombard and Katherine Hepburn and all those movies that in a way why the women then could get away with more is because it was seen as, like, a fantasy. Mm. you know that it was just like oh women you know uh, the idea of women really being in the workforce in certain ways just like it was seen as so unrealistic that more was allowed on screen and then as it became more and more realistic the depictions on screen actually got less and less um which I also just think is sort of interesting as you sort of exit the 50s and go into the 60s where um the more kind of strides women made um in the workforce and culturally and like with the advent of birth control and all of that how in certain ways then people were more inclined to like confine in other ways yeah yeah she's so confident uh Winifred and like throughout it's like it's so and that's kind of refreshing too because like yeah you don't usually see that that kind of character which is why the the song shy is such an interesting choice for her her first song because it's like 
just talking about like how even though she's like big and confident like that she has this shyness within her but i guess that's like speaks to the contradiction of like that she's supposed to be this delicate princess also but i think also it speaks to like you know contradictions in a lot of women who are like i mean i feel like i'm like this like I'm like feel innately shy, but like got over my shyness, but I still, <laughs> so I like, people don't think of me as shy anymore, but like, I still feel shy kind of thing. But yeah. I also like, I mean, I also feel like to a certain extent, they're just going for the joke and the joke of like belting yeah. people shy. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think so too. I think that's, that's basically what it is, especially since it was like a one-off song at first, but it, I think it does speak. I, I think it does speak to deeper things that probably are unintended. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I, I was just thinking like about her three songs in the show, and like so shy, and then like um, her song about her home, the, the swamps, swamps of home, the swamps of home, which is is just like a cute a cute song but it does speak to also like this is where like this is where you you hear about how she her where she comes from like there's no class hierarchy and like that's why everybody that that's kind of like it kind of to explain why she's the way she is i guess she's a princess who is also like doesn't act like one she's like more of the common people. The swamps of home are brushed with green and gold at break of day. At break of day. The swamps of home are lovely to behold from And then the Happily Ever After song, uh, which is also just like a really great uh, comedy song. They all lived happily, happily, happily ever after. The couple is happily leaving the chapel eternally tied. As the curtain descends, there is nothing but loving and laughter. But she landed a prince who was brawny and blue-eyed and blonde. Still, I honestly doubt that she could ever have done it without that crazy lady with the wand. Cinderella had outside help. I have no one but me. Fairy godmother, 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 where can you be? I haven't got a fairy godmother. I haven't even got a godmother. I have a mother, a plain, ordinary...
Well, I think also it's like you were saying, like, even though you would have like a, a female character in a show who like wasn't a, but like they weren't really protagonists. I feel like what separates them sometimes is like this character has like a point of view where like you really hear her point of view in this song where it's I mean, she's she even ha- she has a point of view throughout. But here she is having a point of view about other fairy tale characters of which she is one. Um, and I just so many and I feel like so many times I read or watch or see things with a, you know, female character. And it's like they don't actually have a point of view on anything. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like correct. I also think, and not to be like reductive about it, but the other thing is like all of the songs are so loud. Yeah. (laughs) Which I know sounds like a really silly reductive point, but like they're all loud. They're all big. Right. Like anything to give variety, but like they don't, she doesn't get like a quiet, she never gets a quiet song. No, but I, I imagine also it just has to do with the limitations of the performance that they are writing with, but I actually think mm-hmm. the fact that they're all sort of like big and loud um, is enjoyable. Because um, again, like that's kind yeah. of different. And I think the other thing, which from everything I've read about various productions, is that all of those numbers are designed to be like fairly physical. Mm-hmm. Um, and fairly physical in like a comedic sense more than like choreography, um, other than I guess mattress choreography. Um, right. Which I think is like also something that I find very fascinating and it'll be interesting in the encore's production because that'll be the first like, you know, certainly professional production that it sounds like either of us have ever seen. Um, yeah. Is how much the physicality of the character uh, or how much the physicality is tied in not just to the character, but also in terms of like the songs and how well they work or not, because so much of that is both performance and directorial. Um, and that's what I thought was sort of interesting in reading about the Sarah Jessica Parker production. There's so many versions of this show. There's like a bunch of TV versions. Two, there's two TV versions with, with Carol Burnett. There's a third TV version where Carol Burnett is the queen. Like there's just so many versions. But I was like, let me just see like the pure, <laughs> the pure script. So I watched the high school version, and it it's so it is interesting to see what like I mean, this is must have been done so much so often the show in high schools, but just to see like how all these people interpret that physicality, um, and this the girl who was in this random high school production was so so different physically, doing it so different physically from what carol barnett does you know well it's an unprofessional child so yes but like i think this show is done so often in high schools that it's like open for that kind of those kind of choices see and i would actually in some ways disagree i mean also having to watch a high school production would sort of be my worst nightmare um (laughs) especially if a comedy because i actually think the thing is with comedy is i do think it is absolutely the hardest thing to do. And I think it takes the mm-hmm. most technical skill out of anything. And I think it is the type of thing that requires – and I think what people don't always like realize about comedy is that it requires a hell of a lot of precision. And it really does require like a – tech. there is a technical aspect to it, which I think gets downplayed mm-hmm. a lot or like not talked about outside of uh, certain circles because I think there's this idea of, oh, comedy is the truth and you just do the truth. And I'm like, no, that is not correct. 
Um, Because I think so much of comedy is like, no, if you move on the wrong part of the line, you are not going to get the same amount. Like, you're not going to get the laugh in the same way. Right. There is part of it that it's just deeply, deeply technical. Um, And uh, really requires a lot, both from the performer and I would say, like, again, like, it's a big directorial challenge, especially, I think, on stage. Um, and I'm not sure part of why I say that is just because my brain works a little bit more, uh, cinematically and in terms of like having a frame and having the Mm -hmm. camera and on stage, obviously you don't really have that. Um, and so much of comedy is making sure that people are like looking where they're supposed to be looking when they're supposed to be looking there. Cause again, it really like to keep using that example of like, if you move on the wrong line, It'll you won't get the same laugh as you will if you move on like a different part of the line, um, and all that stuff really makes a difference. In the same way that if you're writing comedy, the order of words and the order that the audience hears information, like it really does change the laugh that you get um, yeah. in terms of like what they need to hear first, and sort of even just like as simple as like certain consonants work better for to get a punchline um, and things like that. And what I think is interesting on stage, or at least for me, and again, maybe this is just because of the way my brain works, um, is sort of getting that precision when you have a very sort of broad um, uh, landscape, I guess, to work from. There's a better word. I don't know why I chose that. Um, And when you don't have the camera, and I think especially in today's world, and this has been like this for a while, where like the best comedy is happening on television that it's sort of like how do you translate the precision of like a Tina Fey joke where the camera is telling you exactly what to look and all that on the stage where like everything needs to be working at exactly the right time because like you're not going to have an editor um, right. and you're not going to be able to cut. Um, so... And I think particularly in a show like Once Upon a Mattress where there's, like, a lot of physical stuff. Um, uh-huh. And in reading about, like, the Sarah Jessica Parker production, it sounds like a big issue with sort of, like, the physical comedy not working. Which I would say right. – I mean, it sounds like a lot of that people sort of pinned on her. I would say, like, at least 50% of that is also directorial. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely going to be interesting in Encores. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said yeah. that. It sounds like an ominous way because I like like many of the people involved in the Encores production. Um, yes, it'll it'll be interesting at Encores. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, in a good way. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just interesting to me that this is a show that gets done so much uh, in amateur and high school, where you're not going to have as skilled comedians doing the show. Yet people lo- like love doing it, and it still apparently yeah. works. I mean, I think because it's fun, and I think also because like the music isn't super arrangy, and because it right. allows for sort of like casting people with different abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so all of those reasons, like I totally get why like it's done in high school, it's done in amateur ways, and also because yeah. like the casting can be like a lot of it can be anyone like it's very very broad right. in terms of who you can uh, like there aren't a lot of constraints i just also think 
in the sense that there have actually been very few professional productions and certainly like on Broadway um, that I actually do think part of it does have to do with like the technical skills required um, by everybody involved um, to do (laughs) comedy well. Um, To touch briefly, just because I've alluded to it a couple of times, like the Sarah Jessica Parker production, because I do, and neither of us saw it, yeah. But I'm very curious. Like, it's one of those productions that I'm very curious about because, like, a couple of things that to me are, like, interesting about it is Sarah Jessica Parker was in it. Drain Krakowski was also in it. Um, yeah. And it's just, you know, the fact that you have two women who went on to be on two of the most important television shows of, you know, the next era in the same show. Right. And the show, like, flopped. If, I mean, it's certainly an interesting piece of trivia, if nothing else, but it also sort of makes you wonder. Um, and, of course, the yeah, funny thing is also, of course, Jane Krakowski could easily play Winifred. Yeah, I assume she was Lady Lincoln. Yeah, she was. Um, yeah. But it's also just funny because, of course, she could so easily play the other um, part. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I like her very much. I like uh, Sarah Jessica Parker very much. Um but it does start to make you wonder, like, one, what was going on with the production? And, you know, I certainly did some digging around, and it seems like there was, like, a lot of drama behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, That's what I've heard. Yeah. yeah and my, a lot of fights. From my digging around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. I mean, anything where one of the writers gets, like, barred from rehearsal, <laughs> I feel like um, – but also, it sounds like a lot of the fault lies at the feet of uh, the director. Mm-hmm. But I also, like, in reading the reviews, and the New York Times review was Ben Brantley, who I don't think has, like, the best track record with, like, evaluating women, shall we say. Um, yep, yep. Is, it does make me wonder if, like, actually the production was better than maybe the reviews made you think, especially because so much of his criticism with Sarah Jessica Parker, basically, like, not being Carol Brunette and also that she was too skinny, which is just sort of a hilarious <laughs> thing to me to uh, compliment an act or to, like, be, like, uh, an insult to an actress on because I'm like, that's part of the job, Ben. But, yeah, and I mean, I feel like that's also one of Ben Brantley's uh, hallmarks is to, like, conflate physical appearance with performance or with character, right. I should say, more than performance. Um but, and, you know, oh, well, Sarah Jessica Parker, you know, she's just, she's too likable. She's too, and I do think it's true that, like, she couldn't sing the role in a way that was necessarily required. Because I think even though the songs don't have a lot of range in terms of the actual notes, I think they do require a certain amount of vocal elasticity mm-hmm. um, in terms of sound and sound quality, uh, which I don't know if she could deliver. So I do sort of wonder how much of it was just sort of a projection of her, like, not being Carol Burnett and, right, you know, and obviously, like, not being able to sing it quite as you should is, like, you know, it's an issue. But it is sort of funny to me thinking about that and just thinking my own kind of experience of things of, like, as we were saying earlier, that the first production I saw that had, like, a female protagonist was the uh, Burnett Peters' Annie Get Your Gun, another thing that didn't get good reviews. Right. And another thing where a lot of the reviews were, oh, this actress is miscast, 
because, you know, she doesn't look right and she's too soft and she's too this and she's too that. But yet I know so many women who are, you know, around my age, around our age, were like that production was like life changing for them. Mm-hmm. And didn't have that experience at all. Um, and I would say certainly having spent a lot of time researching and then writing about Bernadette Peters and like going back and watching those old performances, I was like, no, like 13 year old was me was right and Ben Brantley was wrong. Um, mm-hmm. But just like the interpretation of how he was sort of reading her physical existence uh, was just not correct. And I think then going into the era of right after that, you know, Sutton Foster and Thoroughly Modern Millie also got a bad review. Right. Wicked also got a bad review. Is that there were sort of a bunch of shows that were very popular with young women that had female protagonists that all got bad reviews. Right. Um, so I do, you know, and obviously it's hard to say because, like, having not seen it and having not been there. Right. Um, but I, I, you know, certainly have some questions about that. Because it's such, like, a specific type of humor that we don't, I mean, we, we like, kind of look at historically as, like, this was around and we know that humor. But it's not, like, a contemporary type of humor. So Yeah, it's, it's very like, not contemporary. Yeah, so, like, how to, how to, like, honor that what it is, which is, like, this fourth belt type of humor, but also for people who don't know that or not familiar with it or know it but are just like not don't need to like experience that like how like what does what does once upon a mattress become without like what does the humor in it become without that element being well i think yeah i have multiple thoughts on that and i think that's going to be like a big question with the on course production and in a way sort of like the primary right. question with sudden lear and my nemesis amy sherman palladino <laughs> um, which we'll get to, or I'll get to in this answer. But I think in terms of one, I, you know, I like that type of humor. I think it's yeah, good. And I honestly too. like, to be truthful, I don't care if other people don't like it. Like yeah. the question of sort of other people, if they don't like it, like it to me is sort of, it's like that Amy Poehler thing uh-huh. um, with um, Jimmy Fallon. It's a very famous story. I'm sure, like, everyone has heard where she was doing something and he didn't think it's funny. And she was like, I really don't fucking care if you don't think it's funny. <laughs> and that's sort of my answer to that question is, like, I just, okay, so you don't think mm-hmm. it's funny. That's fine. There's funny stuff. I don't think that's funny. Uh, in terms of, though, it not being contemporary uh, in a different way in terms of performance, like, I feel like that's a real challenge for Sutton and Lear um, in terms of shaping that because to get it to work, they need to sort of do it as it is. Right. And I think if you try to put contemporary mannerisms, contemporary speech patterns in something where they shouldn't be, um, it's going to wreck the comedy. And I think like that uh, certainly is a challenge for Sutton and for Sutton to Lear uh, and for Lear to just sort of have like blinders on mm-hmm. and ignore sort of modern influences because like they're not necessarily necessary and so much of them aren't like it's not good. Um, I mean, obviously, like, there are many funny people out there. Um, but a sort of contemporary thing. Um, and, you know, I think this whole thing with my nemesis, Amy Sherman Palladino, who was, like, updating the book, which I think is a – and I will say, like, 
I like Sutton very much. I mean, I don't know her personally, but I like her very much as a performer. Um, I like Lear very much um, as an individual because I do know her. Also, um, as a creative person, I think she's an incredibly fascinating person. Um, Amy Sherman Palladino, I do not like. Um, And I don't think she's a good writer. I don't think she's a good choice for this, um, which I don't like on many levels. But also, um, I think... You know, she's not funny. I, I really question her under, like, getting that this type of humor. Yes. Um, I mean, I think, like, yes. Because it was interesting reading the, you know, Mary Rogers book, and it's like, and just having watched Amy Sherman Palladino show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and just, like, Mary Rogers was is basically a contemporary of the character Midge Maisel and just like I'm reading this book and I'm like oh like this was the experience of rich Jews in New York this this is an authentic like yeah Jewish experience you she's not a comedy writer and I think on all of her shows um you know everybody sort of speaks in the same way and it's not right for this so I think that and I just I don't think she's a good joke writer Mm -hmm. um and certainly if you wanted women from television, there are some very good joke writers. Right. Not that I know if they want to do this, but like, you know, there's certainly like Tina Fey, excellent joke writer. Mindy Kaling, excellent joke writer. Right. Um, and those women who sort of know how to not just craft a joke, but know how to craft a joke in a bigger setting. Uh-huh. Um, because I think something I alluded to before is I feel like right now there's a real issue and this is such like a terrible corporate word but in terms of like scalability of comedy and sort of understanding like what is a joke what is a sketch what is a half hour sitcom and what is something that can be sustained for two hours right. um in terms of sort of like a bit or sort of a concept and i think what we've seen a lot of lately on stage are things that are just not sustainable in the form that they're in like they're ultimately a joke or a sketch, but they can't be sustained for more than that. And sort of understanding what is needed um, to make audiences have a good time for, you know, two and a half hours. And also like styles like comedy change. But I also think this is the other thing to go back to the issue of style is like, there are certain things that come into style and go out of style, but like the stuff that is good I do think, like, with comedy, like, if it's good, no matter the style, like, you're going to get the laugh. Right. Um, It's just that there's a lot that's not good. Right. And I think then, you know, it's just sort of the market forces that's like, oh, there's this thing of successful, and now we're going to do, like, 17 versions of it, rather than necessarily something being in or something being more appreciated. Oh, well, let's move on to uh, our next section uh, where we will, our Why Is This So Good section. We're going to talk about the song Just In Time from Bells Are Ringing. So why did you pick this song for Why Is This So Good? Um, I just think it's one of the most like charming numbers in a musical. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't have much of like an intellectual answer to it. <laughs> I just think if people want to go and like, also I really like the movie bells are ringing, mm-hmm. um, which is the Vincent Minnelli movie with Judy Holiday. Um, I just think, and in the movie, I think it's like a beautifully filmed, beautifully staged number. 
just in time I found you just in time Before you came my time Was running low I was lost The losing dice were tossed My bridges all were crossed Nowhere to go Now you're here And now I know just where I'm going No more doubt or fear I found my way For love came just in time You found me just in time And changed my lonely life that lovely day What, um, I haven't seen the movie or show in a long time. What, what is like the context of, of this song? I don't remember. It's so, I really like Bells Are Ringing and I've seen it, obviously the movie, as I just mentioned. Um, and then I saw when they did it at Encores. Right. Um, there was also a production, I want to say in the nineties with Faith, Faith Prince, yeah. uh, speaking of things, uh, female protagonists that did not do well um I don't remember why because I didn't see it um but that's sort of the last time that they tried doing it on Broadway um which is funny because I actually think as a show like I think it's pretty solid if I'm remembering correctly Mm -hmm. um so basically the general premise of the show um is that the Judy Judy Holiday also originated the role so it's not that um right for people who don't know um plays a uh, answering uh, machine service operator who gets like overly involved in people's lives who she's taking their messages um and one of them is a playwright who is fairly well known but now you know stuck mm-hmm. um and she basically goes over to help there like lies about who she is um and helps him with his work and of course they end up like dating and you know um it's one of those where like the plot is ridiculous because there's also a whole thing where there's like um a whole subplot with like um the I can't remember exactly like what the crime is that they end up being accused of or like the answering machine service. Yeah that they there's think like, is, like a, a yeah it's but there's like a betting, whole subplot. There's a betting uh, yeah. thing going on, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah gambling I that is correct. Um which is, and these are, by the way, all the things that I really like in musicals when they're just, like, ridiculous. But I think this is the thing. is Again, going back to the Mary Rogers book, the strangest things are always true. <laughs> like, <laughs> life is always stranger than fiction. Right. Um, so I actually find all this incredibly realistic as a thing that could all, like, totally happen. So Just in Time happens where Judy Holiday and the playwright, they're going on a date and they end up actually having to go to like a party that's being given by like the producer of his play. Um, and this number happens sort of before that. Um, and it just is like this sort of, this is the other thing is like in the movie it's staged outside. I think this is the way they stage it. Um, on stage too always is that it's sort of outside, like, um, 
over by the East River in the movie and you see the bridge. And it's also just like, this is what I mean by like a beautifully shot, sort of like beautifully like New York number. Total, like obviously not realistic at all. Um, You know, in the version of the song that they do, like it's not rangy. It's like, it's very simple. Um, And, you know, it's mostly him singing and she has like a couple of little interjections. But, like, the dance is very, like, lovely. The, like, little comedy routine that happens in it is very lovely. I just think that it has a romantic quality. Not romantic in, like, a sexual way or anything like that. Um, But sort of a romantic quality in the sense that it just sort of... Like, a romantic quality in the same way that, like, when Holly Golightly gives the, like, Tiffany's speech about like oh nobody can have the mean reds in here like it's that sort of number that just exists and like this very weird sort of like non-realistic mm-hmm. space but like you want it to be realistic it's like it always reminds me of that story that like Susan Stroman tells of Mel Brooks coming over to the apartment of her apartment um trying to get her to do the producers uh, or directed after her husband had died um and sort of coming in and being like I'm Mel Brooks and like coming in singing a song and like dancing through her apartment Uh like it to me it sort of has like that same quality of just things that I find very (laughs) delightful yeah it's such like um yeah like a lovely like ballad for him I love I love her all her interjections in there because she's such like a I mean she's such a fun funny character and her interjections are kind of wacky. <laughs> yeah. And also, by the way, like another comedy that's sort of from the same Once Upon a Mattress time. Yeah. Um, Another comedy, another where like a woman gets to be funny. Her her lines, some of her lines in this are just like do 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 Like <laughs> it's like that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, in the right hands is just like hilarious. Just in time. I found you just in time. Before you came, my time was running low. Yes, I could play the Palladium or even the Yankee Stadium. I was lost. He was lost. The losing dice were tossed. They were tossed. My bridges all were crossed. They were crossed. Nowhere to go. Theater world, or when I get a shout out to, which I'm 
you know, uh, uh, something, uh, yeah, I mean, we've been talking about Once Upon a Mattress, so definitely that, but anything. Yeah, I feel like we don't need to say that again. Yeah, any, we've anything else? Said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. Not a musical, although heavily scored. I will say everyone should watch my short film when it's out, which it will be. We have a, a score that is very, um present and that it's sort of like another character in the film um so i'll go ahead and plug that and plug myself um just sure. <laughs> not technically being a musical um but the other thing that i am looking forward to is um that i have no involvement in whatsoever um is the laura bonanti show that she's doing for audible um oh yeah that she um wrote as well as um being in and that's in february um I have no idea what it is, uh, but I'm excited to find out. Um, and I also just think it's um, very cool and admirable that uh, she's, like, writing it, too. And um, certainly it sounds like, you know, uh, writing something that's, like, what she wants to see and what she wants to do. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I find that exciting. Yeah. Is it, um, is it a musical? Like, is there, is she going to be singing? It's, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's like, from what I know, it's like, it's a comedy show with songs. Oh, um, cool. And she and Todd Almond um, oh, love him. wrote the song. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think he's a very uh, talented I have, and writer. I have her, uh, Laura Benanti's, one of her albums where she sings some of his songs. And I, I do, I like the, that pairing for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, I, again, like, I, she hasn't been giving away much about, like, what the show is actually about. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I have no idea, but I'm certainly, in, I'm very interested to find out. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow on Instagram at scene to song, on Twitter or X at scene song, and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com and contribute to our Patreon. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for the season finale episode from December 17th.